I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with Christopher Mott, formerly of the U.S. State Department and now a research fellow for the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, about his article at Covert Action magazine entitled Samantha Power and the Cosmopolitan Crusaders. If you're unfamiliar with Samantha Power, she is a heavyweight in the world of foreign policy, who's become associated with the doctrine known as Responsibility to Protect, or R2P. Christopher Mott has some very strong criticisms of Power and her allies, and in this conversation you'll hear a lot more about that and much more on this edition of Parallax Views. But before we get to the conversation, a word from one of our sponsors. Words make the walls that trick us into complying with stasis. Zen. The Zen of the Other is a work that follows one man as he attempts to find his way through the jumble of modernity that envelops us all and threatens to strangle us in its tentacles longer than night. Call me Ezra. Names are not important. Cast into a world where the liminal overlaps the world of the paranormal philosophical speculation. Shadows, the void are all painted over. Magic of the deep dark night. Ezra Buckley, struggling to keep his head above water long enough to pluck a jewel of wisdom from the crown of a forest spirit. The very act of writing down the story in static form, carved into clay and hardened, was in itself an act of black magic. In a world devoid of rites of passage, Ezra finds himself on his own as he is confronted with the very real prospect of having a life-changing liminal experience in the woods of Big Sur, if he can survive it. Back to zero, which for me, those days seemed like where the forces of nature wanted me to reside. Is it even real? Is it the legendary watchers of Big Sur phenomena or something else? Zen is a work that confronts the questions of identity, modernity, life, the other, and the place for rites of passage in the modern world. Where mystery reigns supreme. Zen, the Zen of the other, the audio play. Available now on digital.panicmachine.com, Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and your favorite streaming service. Welcome to Parallax Views. Christopher Mott, a research fellow at the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy, 
author of The Formless Empire, A Short History of Diplomacy and Warfare in Central Asia, and author of the recent piece in Covert Action Magazine entitled Samantha Power and the Cosmopolitan Crusaders from December 21st, 2021. I was very interested in having you on, Christopher, to talk about this piece. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of this Covert Action Magazine piece, uh, let's talk about Samantha Power and what you mean by the Cosmopolitan Crusaders. Uh, for listeners that, you know, I always assume I'm going to have listeners that are going to say, well, who's Samantha Power? Because she's sort of, uh, she's well known, but just for newbies, maybe, uh, to this uh, world of the foreign policy blob, who is Samantha Power? Right. Well, Samantha Power um, is a uh, person of joint, I believe, joint Irish and uh, United States citizenship, who uh, was an academic originally in her, her public life. And she wrote in the 1990s as a response to the uh, civil wars and genocides that occurred in the for increasingly former Yugoslavia, as well as in Rwanda, uh, a very influential book with policymakers, which was called A Problem from Hell. And it was about handling like a uh, incredibly deadly ethnic conflict and whatnot. And the, the interesting thing is, um, and this is worth keeping in mind as we go forward and uh, take a much more critical eye at her role in politics, like this book is like pretty good. Like th this is like a, a pretty good uh, thorough view on like what leads to a lot of ethnic conflict and uh, what are the forces behind it and what are things that outsiders uh, should pay attention to when they're, when they're uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, looking at these things. Of course, uh, she, a lot of her examples were kind of, uh, uh, it was kind of skewed towards uh, countries that America doesn't really like that much. So so, so it gives a, uh, it does give a somewhat skewed view of, of world affairs because she doesn't really talk about uh, uh, times when the U.S. has been on the side of, say, a government carrying out one of these policies. But it was a very influential book in academic circles uh, in, in the 1990s and into the 2000s. And it led to her getting a position on the Obama campaign as I believe one of his foreign policy advisors, not sure exactly what her title was uh, in the run up. Um, and in that primary, she got in trouble. Like she started out kind of cool. She got in trouble for criticizing Hillary Clinton, like, like all cool people should. Uh, but then uh, uh, she got a job in the Obama administration uh, influence. She had various positions actually, but um, she got to kind of uh, support her her responsibility to protect doctrine now, uh, which is something that she had started formulating back in the past. And uh, responsibility to protect the R2P is the idea that powerful states and implicitly, I believe, NATO aligned states is, is kind of the uh, implication, uh, have a job uh, to stop major human rights abuses, uh, even if it violates another country's sovereignty. This, this is their responsibility to protect. Um, of course, there was an attempt to do this in the Bush administration. So Samantha Power wasn't in, uh, it had any political influence yet in the Bush administration, but the Bush administration definitely 
was influenced by R2P a little bit, we almost kind of saw it happen because there was a lot of humanitarian rhetoric around the Iraq war. These days, we just talk about the WND thing and how that failed, but I distinctly remember, I literally was, uh, you know, this is happening when I was in high school and I was paying a lot of attention to it. There was a huge humanitarian push uh, as a part of the Iraq war. But I was going to say, it was, I think it overlapped a little bit with that sort of idea of compassionate conservatism that that Bush was pushing. Well, yes, uh, Bush and Samantha Power, actually, this is something I'll probably have to touch on uh, later as a separate thing. Their worldviews are weirdly similar in a lot of ways, um, uh, albeit from a different original point. But um, I think where you saw people really try to invoke it was actually not in Iraq, but in Darfur, in the Sudan. In 2005, there was this very large push by like legacy media and a lot of commentators that there's a huge genocide in Darfur and the U.S. should consider intervening in it. Um, this, of course, did not happen because this was also the year that the Iraq war turned really, really bad for the administration. And so not only was there no uh, desire to continue expanding conflicts, and also in, this, in Bush's second term, Cheney's influence diminished due to the failures of the occupation of Iraq. And so you have uh, this, this Darfur thing comes up and America doesn't do anything about it. But this gives kind of credence to the idea that R2P is the correct way, as opposed to the neoconservative Bush way. R2P is the correct way to influence uh, policy if you want to diminish humanitarian suffering. So Samantha Power comes in. And, and, and to be fair, I mean, I, I can understand why it's appealing, too. Well, if you're of a certain mindset, sure. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to be charitable. Yeah. Uh, go, yeah. Go on. Yeah. No, no, you're right. It's very easy to whip people up about this stuff. It's like, we can do something with our immense military power. We can actually make the world a better place. And I'm not saying that that always fails because we, we can always look at history and, and see that there were times where the deployment of military power did make a situation less bad overall. But... One has to compare how many times did that happen versus how many times did the opposite happen. Uh, it becomes a bit of a probability calculation, obviously, at that point. Um, and I don't think the probability is in favor of the interventionist there. Um, and also, most of the times that did happen, there was a, a, an extenuating reason why that intervention occurred. It usually did not have to do with humanitarian reasons. There usually was a security goal that got people really investing in the country's economy or redevelopment, like the Axis powers after World War II, um, it, it, which does not always apply to countries, especially countries that never industrialized in the first place. Therefore, they have lower literacy rates. They're harder to kind of engineer on a specific path, it's, it's relatively easy, comparatively speaking, to re-industrialize an already industrialized country than one which has not yet reached that level yet. So there's a lot going on there. But Samantha Power finally got her uh, chance, if you will, to really shape policy when the Arab Spring occurred. And you have all these governments, they're either getting weaker or they're kind of reacting uh, to rebellion or they have outright civil wars. And Libya would be the test case of R2P. Um, and Samantha Power is not alone here. There were plenty of people in the Obama administration. And I would actually say, if you look at what was going on back in 2011, um, 
that the people who most wanted to intervene in Libya were actually Britain and France and not the United States, and that Obama was very kind of waffly on the issue. And it was Hillary Clinton and Samantha Power, the former enemies now reconciled under the cause of interventionism, um, who actually probably pushed him on his kind of fence-sitting position towards uh, leading an operation because Britain and France could not have done it alone. They didn't have the logistical capability. So you have a, a, what is effectively a joint NATO operation explicitly justified under humanitarian grounds, some of which we know is completely fake now. There were a lot of um, certain uh, uh, stories circulated in the media that Gaddafi's security forces were given Viagra in order to mass rape uh, when they took over a place. This is complete BS. It, 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 there's never been any evidence that this ever occurred whatsoever. Um, so there was this built up, this civil war is going to get really bad. Gaddafi is going to murder everyone. Um, and so we, the worst case scenario is to do nothing. So under R2P, we intervened in Libya. Now, of course, <laughs> what happened in that intervention is that we bombed the hell out of the country. Uh, we did topple the government because I really don't think the rebels would have toppled the government without outside support, the way the war was working. It still took like at least six months. I don't remember exactly, but like it, it took a, a fair amount of time for the government to fall with complete NATO air supremacy over the country and working on behalf of the rebels, which definitely implies to me that um, the rebellion would not have been successful without outside help. So what happens, of course, to Libya is, well, the US media all of a sudden stops talking about it, except for maybe a few years later where they're like, Libya's the center point of this horrific refugee crisis. I guess that just kind of happened. Uh, but of course, what really happened was the government collapsed uh, there was no centralized authority to take its place. Uh, Obama did not want troops on the ground. So it's not like the, he didn't want to repeat the Iraq debacle. So you just kind of have this weird power vacuum that occurs. And all these actors, including international jihadist groups, as well as local warlords, come to power in various places. They fight each other. They're still fighting each other. And the um, it becomes an, a kind of a open place for uh, uh, migrants to go to Europe, uh, which leads to the return of the slave trade to North Africa. So we now have uh, open market slave trading occurring in the cities in Libya. And also, of course, the refugee crisis ironically leads to the rise of the European far right, which has some level of influence on the rise of the American far right, which means that Trump beats Hillary in part because of these uh, military actions. I would also count them U.S. operations in Honduras for that as well, exacerbating a migrant crisis. So it, re it reminds me uh, that, that that seems like uh, I, I don't even I don't know that I want to use the word uh, poetic justice, but I, I'm just thinking of the time Hillary said, uh, you know, she thought she was off the record, but she, she said in an interview, uh, we say we came, we saw, we killed, haha, you know, about the yeah, I, I think, I think, I think it was he died. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Uh, we came, we saw, he died. And then she did her like trademark hackle. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, um, it's they were kind of proud of it like i think they thought at that time that that this was going to be look we're the smart people in the room we're the obama administration we got straight a's in school and and, and you know whatever we're not but you're saying it came back to young. haunt her and others essentially yes yes but, but they originally i think thought this was going to be their cred 
we're just as tough as the Republicans and we can do a regime change war better than they can with no American casualties and blah, blah, blah. Of course, I would argue Libya's situation was far worse than Iraq's situation post-war. Um, it, was, it wasn't as bad for Americans because we weren't trying to occupy the country, but I think it was actually um, arguably worse for the country itself, even than Iraq. So uh, this did come back to get them. It, it did hurt them really badly. I, keep in mind, Obama ran for president in 2008 on an anti-invade-random-countries like, platform. <laughs> um, this was his Iraq, and it was just kind of buried. It was, it was kind of thrown out and discarded, and uh, the whole country has been kind of thrown out and discarded, except for people that are directly intervening with the various factions on the ground. So I mean, it, um, it's just basically talked about as a failed state now. Yeah, oh, a failed state, just like, you know, Albania or something. Yeah, like it just kind of happened. <laughs> um, and, and there isn't, there's often the context is lacking as to why it was a failed state, because of course, keep in mind, for all of Gaddafi's like, you know, horrific um, things that he may have done here and there, it was the most developed state, economically speaking, on the African continent. And now you could definitely not say that anymore. So humanitarian intervention um, creates, if anything, the conditions for more humanitarian intervention because, and this, this thesis I am partly pulling from uh, Philip Cunliffe's book, uh, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, which I cite in the article. He's um, actually been on the show before. Yeah, I, I noticed that. That's really cool, actually. Uh, um, I, I thought that book was great. Um, he makes a really good case that this is, for at least the smarter people in DC, uh, kind of the intention. If the humanitarian intervention fails, then the humanitarian situation remains or becomes exacerbated, which gives an excuse for further interventions in the future should you need one. Whether you want to break into someone's economy or you want to deploy sanctions against someone or what have you. And this is kind of what, I mean, we definitely saw this in Syria where the, where the attempt at a regime change was not over. It did not involve uh, air supremacy over the entire country, but it, it involved secret policies and uh, behind the scenes things and uh, various other things, Operation Timber Sycamore being possibly the most expensive um, operation in CIA history, which was the arm uh, train and equip program for Syrian mod moderate quote unquote rebels. Of course, the word has become a joke now for, and rightly so, because most of those people were sectarian jihadists and um, those programs were eventually shut down because they were they eventually the government realized that's what was happening. Of course, if they had asked an actual Syria expert uh, at the start of the war, uh, of which I had the good fortune to know many because the war began um, uh, when I was a, uh, doing my graduate studies in St. Andrews, which is a great Syria studies department, um, a lot of those people could have told you, yeah, these, these rebels aren't gonna be so great, <laughs> but they, they jumped right into it. And um, this is kind of where we're left now. Like Libya was R2P's test case, I feel like they, they finally got their chance. Everything was right. The terrain of the country was right. It didn't have that many ethnic divisions in it. It didn't have that many sectarian divisions. It was, you could operate from the Mediterranean. Um, it was a great test case and they blew it. They completely blew it. So, um, but this is not to say that the war is Samantha Power's fault. Obviously there's the whole administration did this, but she's the most overt example of a certain ideology that thrives in Washington, DC that says America is the indispensable nation and it should use that power to be quote unquote, the good guy. And that these things will benefit the world. 
And now a word from our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Reeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this. Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here. But there's a deeper cut into my non-musical queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Lauded for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Is it fair to say that what Samantha Power is getting at is really just a form of American exceptionalism? Yeah, yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, American exceptionalism can take multiple forms. I think it has a left, right, and a center, like, like many other ideologies do. And um, the the kind of um, the Obama worldview was not a huge break with the Bush worldview. It was just like we don't want all these troops coming back in body bags, and and we don't necessarily want to invoke the uh, the Bush doctrine of of if we feel anything is a threat, we'll just go after it immediately. But it's still functionally the same. I mean, their presidencies are so similar in so many ways, and uh, I, I feel like that she's a kind of good example of she played the role that like. Um, you know, like a, a Wolfowitz or a Bremer would, would have played, you know, uh, the decade before. So um, there is a lot of continuity here. And, and you see this in commentary around uh, the humanitarian operations is, well, American exceptionalism is deeply chauvinistic, but we, we could use our power to, uh, you know, make the world a better place. And But that's still American exceptionalism, obviously. So, so it, I want to get more into the article, but the other thing I wanted to mention about uh, Samantha Power, and I would say this is a, a thing in D.C. as well, and I'm not sure, well, I, I don't think it's limited to neocons, but I, I think there's an idea in the sort of D.C. foreign policy consensus, uh, the, the D.C. blob, as I like to call it, wherein... Obama invented the term, actually, but it's a great term. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I think uh, Obama and Ben Rhodes, yeah, yeah. But... Uh, yeah. It, it's interesting to me. I think a lot of the foreign policy thinking in DC, and maybe you'll disagree with this, 
is driven by this sort of fear that if we don't do something, uh, then it's going to be Weimar, 1930s all over again in this country or that yes. country. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, I, I think so. Um, I mean, you've even seen that rhetoric crop up in our domestic politics recently as well, I think. Um, it, it really implies that the American uh, public education system, I, I think, really teaches history like uh, uh, yeah, in the old days, people built pyramids, and then Henry VIII had a lot of wives, and then 1776, rah-rah, and, and then and then uh, the run-up to World War II went World War II, <laughs> and that's effectively the, the kind of general worldview, and so you see this ridiculous percentage of people of all ideological persuasions who compare everything to the rise of fascism in the interwar era and the rise of the Nazi party and or and in the foreign policy field this particularly comes across as oh this is like when neville chamberlain sold out you know czechoslovakia this is you know whatever and and, and it's like also importantly i think it gets to a point where you know any criticism of the foreign policy consensus is then written off as uh well, you're just an isolationist, you know, uh, you know, yeah. uh, anyone who takes the realist perspective or even a progressive perspective, well, you're all crypto isolationists. Yes, yes. And, and this is what it's meant to do, because the, the, the World War II analogy, first of all, World War II was a really weird time in, in, in history. Comparing most other times to World War II is, would be like comparing, uh, I don't know, like a, a restaurant you went to to that weird recently memed restaurant where the chef uh serves that foam thing of his own mouth and, and like stuff comes out of it and thinking that that's a normal experience like it's a it's a very you know like it, these historical things don't always quite match so it, it's an awkward analogy in the first place but the reason that they deploy it aside from the fact that i think a lot of them are historically illiterate and therefore only know like the big uh kind of uh uh, Jerry Bruckheimer type super special uh, wars of history and not really but the whole big picture of history. Um, I think they, they like it because we have a mythology about isolationism allowed these things to happen and only by overcoming isolationism could America set things right again. Of course, uh, uh, Stephen Wertheim just published a really, really good book on the, the America in the run-up to World War II and how isolationism wasn't even really a thing. <laughs> and most people that were called isolationists were in fact pro-diplomacy people who wanted to keep the access out of the Western hemisphere and wanted to usually to build up the military to do so. They just didn't want to jump into the war without a really good reason, especially because it was viewed as bulking up the British Empire, who was also a rival. So, um, and you know, FDR would later go on to undermine the British in every way he could. So. <laughs> I don't think that went away either, even in the war. So it, it's it's isolation is, is a term used to everyone. I've been called it myself. I consider myself to be on foreign policy issues uh, very much in the realist camp. And I very much think that if America was technically isolationist in this you know, cartoon version that they have of it, it would create this huge power vacuum and that would be a problem. So I wouldn't describe myself as that either. But um, I 100%, by being pro-diplomacy first, by seeing conflict as the last rather than the first resort, um, and by seeing other people's interests as just as valid as the United States' interests, uh, i.e., you know, have the actually cosmopolitan view of the world where everyone is their own actor <laughs> um, and a more and start out from a position of moral neutrality, as I think diplomacy should, that 
is enough to get you called with isolation. Um, I, I, I think it's odd too. I've always not. No, I, I keep interrupting you. I apologize. No, it's fine. Continue. I, I've always thought it odd that uh, you know. To me, it's all topsy turvy how we uh, talk about isolationism because you know I don't think I'm not. I wouldn't say that. How do I put this? I wouldn't say that you know you can't ever have an intervention or you uh, can't ever uh, be involved in war as, as a nation state, uh, but it shouldn't be the, the first thing you jump towards. Absolutely. Diplomacy <laughs> should come first. And it, to me, it's we, we have it backwards. We do diplomacy last now. If it, well, we don't really correct. do diplomacy, I guess. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. And that is the problem that the, the Beltway goes. And of course, there, there's you know also not just ideological financial reasons for this you know the, the best place to make money in dc if not in the us is, is in defense contracting so there, there's a huge economic incentive to be pro-war in a lot of cases and a huge and a huge incentive to lobbies from various countries to always back certain allies to the hill because they have bought and paid for a lot of the lanyard class in dc um so so there is like multiple elements ideological like systemic whatever um and it's all part of of the whole thing but yeah the, the war first thing and then when you say well like diplomacy should always come first it, it, it's almost viewed by many of these people as like oh well even if it's even if they view that as a legitimate point it's still kind of like a weird outlier point and i'm like well literally the first recorded uh sustained theorist of war sun tzu said the same thing in his first chapter in the art of war <laughs> he said you know i'm going to write a book about war but i want to remind everyone that war represents a policy failure and that inevitably you will have to fight wars so that's why i have to write this book but uh, you should do everything in your power first to avoid fighting a war because it means you've already kind of lost because of the risks are so high because the potential for things to go wrong even if you win the damage done to your society could be great so this is not a new idea this it's the default idea i would think in any culture that has a historically rooted concept of grand strategy but I would say that the United States does not. The United States is a very young country. It does not have a historically rooted concept of grand strategy. It still kind of goes from fad to fad. And these tend to make its concepts of foreign policy overly ideological and sometimes quite messianic. And people like Samantha Power are great examples of that um, because they think, well, I mean, I could even quote um, oh, um, Madeleine Albright back in the 90s she said, you know, what's the point of having this giant military if we're not going to use it? <laughs> but of course, there, there was no imminent threat to U.S. domination in the 90s that U.S. was the most powerful nation comparatively that the world has ever seen in that time period. And it had no peer competitors. So there, she was effectively making an argument against cutting the defense budget. And the best argument to do that would be to keep using it. And then along comes people like Samantha Power and others who say, well, we have the reason for you to never cut the defense budget. Of course, it never quite takes off because it's hard for the average American citizen to really see this. And then, of course, 9-11 happens, the war on terror happens, and we get exactly that. We get the, oh, now they're coming for us. Now we have to do that. And of course, overly militarizing the response to 9-11 was also a mistake. So I think what's interesting, too, is I, when I mentioned the American exceptionalism thing, I noticed that a lot of uh, these characters We'll always use the term international like we need to use international military force but ultimately they're they're really calling for what is largely american military force to be used 
Yeah. <laughs> well, if, if you want to know, uh, this is this is actually a, a point I bring up a lot when people talk about uh, these same people are the same people that believe in uh, democratic uh, peace theory, i.e. the idea that democracies don't go to war with each other, which once again, I, I think is a, uh, a lack of understanding a lot of history if, if that is it's like the uh it's like the mcdonald's golden arches theory of war that thomas friedman has yeah yeah it's exactly it's the slightly more respectable golden arches theory of course the golden arches theory got busted literally the year after he wrote that book because iraq i think had one mcdonald's in baghdad and when we invaded so <laughs> it didn't yeah even, and, and for people that don't that. know that i guess the theory is that uh countries that have a mcdonald's are less likely to go to war with each other yes it's also worth noting that back in 1913, a, a, a French, I believe French, maybe British, I don't know, definitely in the West of Europe, um, a philosopher wrote a best-selling book that said the European nations are engaged with so much trade with each other that they will never fight a conventional war against each other ever again. It would be too expensive. And of course, 1914 is when World War I starts. So, you know, you, you always see these kinds of things, but um, it, it's it's kind of similar to, to that in a sense. Like, um, you notice how uh, international means American and its allies. Of course, how much do the allies contribute to these alliances? I'm not saying they don't, but it, it's nothing compared to the United States, which, which makes me think, much like with democratic peace theory, uh, it makes me think like, well, isn't it really the fact that the U.S. has no peer competitors amongst its allied democracies. If, you know, Britain and France were as powerful as the United States, I don't think that we would have these super smooth relations. I think they'd be trying to maximize their autonomy and break free of our influence. Uh, and therefore, the democracies would not be getting along together. But I also think that, you know, when it comes to international coalitions, quote unquote, it's because the U.S. is expected to lead and, and do most of it. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't an ideological wing of people in NATO countries that deeply support these policies. In fact, I'd say as a proportion of kind of uh, think tankers and policymakers, there are some countries where it's probably higher than the U.S. Uh, Germany uh, in particular really strikes me. Like the German Green Party loves NATO and loves everything that NATO does, <laughs> but it has these multiple people that are always at for humanitarian intervention. Um, and it's something that I think would be quite bizarre if it happened in the American Green Party. Uh, so you have certain countries that have really bought into this. And so maybe you see part of the appeal for some in Washington, like uh, we, we can keep the North Atlantic together under this ideology of kind of militarized humanism, um, which doesn't surprise me considering certain cultural factors in the North Atlantic. Um, and how they conceptualize themselves and what is like a good and bad person. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that you're right to point out the U.S. is, U.S. and company is the quote-unquote international world. But meanwhile, there's other international worlds. There are other countries that say, oh, we don't want this stuff. We don't want these foreign NGOs. We don't want this weaponized intervention. We'd much rather guard our sovereignty. And sometimes this is very cynically used, of course, to crack down on legitimate protests and, and organic movements. But the fact that people are willing to believe it, both at home and abroad in some of these states, shows how this humanitarian interventionism has backfired because it has in some parts of the world uh, be, shown itself to be a Trojan force. And so now it's almost fighting it is used as an excuse to stop these things. So in the next week, I should have a new article coming out on Kazakhstan that literally talks about exactly this process because the Russia and Kazakhstan talk about putting down the, the protests in Kazakhstan um, as literally fighting an attempted 
color revolution. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know, and I don't think most people do know, but I, but I do know that people will believe it because they have seen time and time again, uh, the US and company use this excuse to insert itself into another country's affairs. And at this point, the US is no longer what it was in the 1990s. Now people can push back. And so it's actually kind of backfired. So while Samantha Power is in charge of USAID, ironically, meaning that she's in charge of um, distributing funds to many of the countries she helped to, to destabilize in the first place, um, I don't really see a huge future for the R2P as it was practiced in the past. I think that R2P will be practiced in a very different, more subtle way now because they know that they've been kind of figured out. And you're most likely going to see that happen through economic sanctions and, and kind of a, a more, much more sneaky methods. And the, the amount of sanctions each administration deploys against official enemies of the US has doubled in every administration since Obama. So Obama really kicked off an addiction to sanctions. Trump doubled it. And now Biden is pro on course, it's too early to tell, but he's on course to keep up that process. And of course, the more sanctions you apply to someone, the less effective they become because they reorient their trade networks, they reorient their alliances, they open up smuggling networks. We have actually an entire report on the IPD website co-authored between me and, um, and uh, Arthur Moeni, our research director, about how sanctions have a really bad record at achieving any positive goal and that that record is only getting worse the more they're used. It's interesting because I think at one point, I, I can understand why this idea of using sanctions uh, was really initially adopted uh, as like an alternative uh, or what could conceivably have been an alternative to going to war. But in itself, it actually really is a form of economic warfare. Yes, it's a it's literally a blockade, but they don't use the term blockade because that is a term usually associated with warfare so that it's a it's a legal fiction that we say sanctions and it sounds quaint and the uh, the NPR people can applaud because it sounds like a very nice proper thing to do but in well, it, actual... it hasn't worked well with our uh, negotiations with Iran if you ask me but <laughs> it, it, well initially I think it had some effect on, on the initial Iran deal uh, because they were new and they, they were they were clearly meant to be temporary and, and it was like we're going to get rid of these once you sign the deal it was it was part of the process. Of course, what happened to the Iran deal, as we all know, is that Trump completely destroyed it. And of course, now, this is the question, why would anyone trust us? And we keep adding sanctions, too. We're not going, the Biden administration is not going back to the original uh, Iran deal. They, they say they want to go back, and then they keep adding sanctions and additional um, requirements on top of the deal and expect Iran to sign it because, you know, well, we're not Trump anymore. And they're like, well, A, Trump could come back in a few years and, and scrap the whole thing anyway. And B, um, they know not to trust us. People abroad don't see orange man bad versus sensible, serious Democrats. It's just Americans, well, some Americans who see that. And they see one unreliable government that sabotages um, these things. So they're going to play harder now. And so are we, but we supposedly want to get back on the deal. It's I'm very confused by Anthony Blinken, as Secretary of State. I don't know what that guy is all about. So there's just a few more things I wanted to touch upon. Uh, so you mentioned earlier uh, ideology, and it's funny because, uh, you know, I was telling you off air that uh, Daniel Bessner of the American Prestige podcast and also, I, I believe he works at the Quincy Institute, 
as well. He, he was talking at one point about, um, you know, his belief that uh, a lot of the people that gave us the Iraq war really believe that they were trying to spread democracy. And I was shocked by the amount of people that are like, no, no, it was just evil Dick Cheney. They didn't believe in any of this. I think a lot of these people really do believe in, in this sort of cause. I, I think Samantha Power is a true believer. And I was wondering if you could speak to that issue because I think people miss that, that yeah, a lot of these people are true believers. I think it is psychologically um, reassuring to tell yourself that this is all fake and they're all cynical because in a weird way, kind of like the more out there conspiracy theories, it, it is like a reassurance that someone's in charge and they actually know what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> but I really think that a lot of the Beltway is truly captured by this ideology in a way that and I'm not saying that there aren't cynical actors, and I'd say that the amount of cynical actors probably goes up the higher in rank you go in general. But these people are very real. And I'm I'm saying this not to pull like a lame my lived experience thing, but like I did live and work in DC for years. Um, I did work for the federal government for a time. Um, and I completely think that there's a lot of people, particularly in the like the middle level, so what we increasingly popular call the professional managerial class, who believes these things quite authentically. And even some people high up, um, I, it's actually hard to explain Hillary Clinton, for example, her views on foreign policy without there being at least some level of ideology there, because she has supported policies that did not actually help the country or even help her show her chops as like, whatever, aside from just being quote unquote tough. So there's a there's a level of true belief that people really do need to understand exists. And I'm not saying that at all to absolve these people because I actually think the opposite. I think like true belief in something that is like ridiculous and keeps getting debunked is way worse than cynical calculation, which at least I can be like, oh, that's logical. I can see why you would do that or you were trying to do this or you were weighing the odds. But like, no, it's to me, it's, it's like a it's like a doomsday cult that you know it has its own and the more it fails the more true it must become oh well next time the apocalypse will truly arrive or whatever um so i mean these are the this is the same group of people that often fall for stuff like you know russia gate or <laughs> or whatever so i, I think there's a, there's a i very... like how in the uh article you you mentioned that uh samantha power herself credits her personal faith with her political convictions I don't think the two are unrelated. Um, much like how George W. Bush was one of the most uh, faithful presidents that we have had, and before him, one of the most faithful presidents we had was uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I would say was an equally disastrous uh, president who had a really horrific concept of how diplomacy and <laughs> foreign policy work. Um, I, I just, which is not to say that religion itself is the problem. It's to say that there are certain forms of religion that are messianic, and I think that the messianic worldview is very seductive, even to people who are not religious, by the way, in societies where that is the default status of the cultural norm. And so, you know, rather than, oh, there's lots of different people and they have different ways, there's much more of this, like, uh, you know, uh, John Allen Chow, I'm going to go to North Sentinel Island and, you know, save the barbarians from their own sinful ways kind of attitude, um, which, which is just, you know, does not fly in the face of reality because they're 
there are different states and they have different cultures and they have different political systems and those all arose as part of their history and their historical experience they didn't choose it and there's no like good guy bad guy aspect to it it's just how things are it's the mess of history and but you have a lot of Americans who are like, no, we're the indispensable nation. We're bringing about the new, you know, we the 20th century was America's century and, and it's unfinished because there's still parts of the world that aren't like America or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I would, I would tell these people, look, you guys had a great run. And I'm not saying that in terms of they were super successful, but <laughs> although, you know, on some things, America was very successful, uh, more in the past than in more recent times. But, um, you guys, you had a run. You know, everyone gets a run when they're when they become a great power. Everyone gets a run where they get to disproportionately shape things, and inevitably they overexpand and it becomes their undoing. So do you do you want to keep doing this uh, and it keep failing more and it keep creating instability at home and abroad, or do you want to take a step back and say, hey, before this gets too nuts, maybe we should be like a more normal country. Like maybe now's the time to say, okay, well we did that whole thing. Um, now we could probably scale ourselves back and maybe we could respect other countries' sovereignty more. Uh, maybe that, because that's the foundation for people getting along with each other, it simply is. And uh, and in turn, maybe they'll respect ours more and it would just be nice. Like I I just think that there is, to, to answer your, your, your core point, I do think there's a lot of true believers in DC. I really do. And um, I'm not saying all of them are, I'm not saying it, it, that's all it is, but that's a very important part of it. And that ideology is a combination of American exceptionalism and this Kantian liberal cosmopolitanism that says in the end, if, if everyone's markets and political systems are the same, that they will all come together. Um, but of course, markets and political systems are responses to local and material forces, which differ all across the world. So that isn't going to happen. So, so what you do get, though, when you create the conditions of chaos through these interventions, which is something that um, Philip Cunliffe brings up quite cogently, is that the true cosmopolitans are kind of the non-state actors that arise in these situations because they often recruit from many different countries. So the jihadist groups, for example, in Syria, um, al-Nusra, uh, around Idlib province and whatnot, a lot of the foreign volunteers that came to fight Gaddafi, they were the true cosmopolitans, the way they were the people coming together for a cause. And they were working with the liberal cosmopolitans who are the NGO kind of, and um, much of the Beltway class to create what they think would be a brave new world, but in fact is just a world of state collapse and uh, refugees and um, a lot more problems than it solves. So two more things here. The first is, you know, I, how do I put this? Um, I think that Cunliffe's book, uh, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, is rather invaluable. Uh, and it's very challenging in a way because, you know, I, I think the response that a lot of people will give to Cunliffe when, when he's interviewed is, well, you mean we should just sit back if, if, if a genocide is happening? And I, it, it, it's hard to argue with that. And I'm not saying that uh, Cunliffe is saying we should always sit back. He's sort of arguing that it's on the, the people who want to enact these policies to make the argument for why it is in, is in national interest and whatnot. But how do you respond to that when people say, well, are we supposed to just sit back when a genocide is happening? I would respond, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit more uh, ruthless than many uh, people who, who are uh, on the more anti-war side of things. And I, I would say, 
that I would calculate it the same way I would calculate any other kind of militarized intervention, which is, can you name, um, can you show me like a cost benefit analysis where the benefit is higher than the cost? Clearly, uh, it, I mean, no guarantees, of course, but in a probability sense. And can you show me how this affects like your average person in the societies that would be launching the intervention? Because an intervention, no matter how bad a situation is, you cannot discount the fact that that an intervention could make it worse. So that needs to be factored into the occasion. If you were going to intervene, you'd have to show not just we're intervening because we have a military and it's the quote unquote right thing to do, but also what our plans would be after the intervention, uh, which is like, what is the plan to get people back on the peace table? What is the plan to withdraw troops, to withdraw air deployments? You know, there needs to be an end game. If you can come up with all those things and show that this would benefit the average citizen of the countries who would um, be taking part in it without the risks you know, being huge, then I think you could make a case for it, especially when it comes to refugee flows. The, 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 I would say if I was going to justify anything, I would say if refugee flows or conflict spillover is breaking into other nations, maybe nation your nation or a nation you're allied with, then you have like a security concern there that is just outside of humanitarian intervention. And, and I can see that. But if you're going to go straight for a humanitarian intervention, which I, I think those are actually pretty rare things that are just purely humanitarian interventions. Um, I honestly think even though there was clearly a free for all on Libyan oil and there was a more cynical motives, I think Libya might come the closest of them um, that we've had. But um, I would really need to say you need to show, okay, are the people for it in your country because they can see the reason that you're doing it and they can see what are the clearly lined out conditions for both success and failure. Um, I mean, the most effective humanitarian intervention to use like quotes around that term in the modern era, I would actually argue was not launched by any NATO countries at all. I would argue it was a, the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia. Um, but that war was 100% also for security reasons, because the Khmer Rouge did not respect Vietnam's borders. Um, and it was part of the Sino-Soviet split as well, where Cambodia was really cozying up with China and Vietnam was still much more in the USSR's camp. So you, you have other factors at play, of course, but that was the most effective humanitarian intervention in the sense that they got rid of truly one of the most odious governments ever um, and, and managed to basically remove it to a kind of a few camps in, in the jungle and border areas and probably save a ton of lives. But how many times do those circumstances come up? And I, my concern is, of course, the media always likes these interventions because America gets to be the good guy because things explode on the news, which means more people watch, which means defense contractors who often pay for advertising on the media get, get more money and so forth and so on. So if you're going to make a decision about these and if you want to do it, and I'm sure there are there are circumstances where even I could support uh, uh, such an intervention if they suited well enough, it would it would have to be divorced from how we consume media, from believing media narratives, as we know that much legacy press will over-report things in foreign countries and under-report things in allied countries. Um, so how much independent research is possible to do about the issue? And also, like, yeah, do you have a reason for it aside from an abstract ideology, which I would argue that the cost Politic crusaders, as I term them, is that abstract ideology. They exist to effectively be this default point that the public and the media goes back to, which is we need to do something because we can, because we're good people, because whatever. And also, I mentioned uh, how a lot of these 
what you would call cosmopolitan crusaders, uh, what we could call the DC blob. Uh, there, there is this sort of fair, uh, uh, it, could, it could be Weimar all, all over again. Uh, how do you view the, the whole issue of, of World War II and, and U.S. involvement in it and, and, and when we got involved? Like, how do you respond when that sort of issue is brought up? Because it's usually used to say this is why we should be uh, intervening. Um, and it's a way to make you look like you're some kind of, you know, uh, fascist sympathizer if you if you say hey <laughs> right. you know this I mean for me what annoys me about the Weimar thing and then I'll, I'll let you give your take uh, you know it's not like Weimar Germany is the only incident throughout all of 20th century history there are also things we can learn from Vietnam there are things we can learn from Iraq not mm -hmm. everything goes back to the 1930s and I'm not dismissing Weimar in the 1930s, but it's not the only incident in all of history. I want to get your take on the whole, the specter of World War II and, and what you, how you respond to that when people bring it up. Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I bring up is, is what I mentioned before, is that World War II is, like you said, not the only thing that happened. There's a lot of things that have happened in history. They don't all fit one clean, easily understood linear narrative. Um, the other thing I like to bring up is that World War II was, in my opinion, not primarily an ideological conflict. I, I think World War II was, ideology played more of a role certainly than in World War I or, or in the Seven Years War, other global conflicts. But I, I do, and the ideology did almost usually, almost across the board, make it worse. So I think World War II, if anything, is comparable to the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, uh, when you had a strong ideological element of Protestantism versus Catholicism, uh, coupled with um, uh, decentralization versus centralization of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, I, I think that's also took place in Germany. Of course, World War II also took place in East Asia and, and other places, but uh, there's a lot of similarities there. Um, those would be the things I'd compare it to. But I would also say don't overvalue the ideological component because what was really going on in World War II was the, the Johnny-come-lately powers did not get to, you know, splurt themselves all across the world and get all the choice colonial possessions. So they had to go closer to home and they had to conquer it from more established countries, uh, which was effectively replicating what Britain and Spain had already done to the world, but on the more literate industrialized <laughs> sections of the world. So we got like the really, really, you know, uh, we, we got all the details for it. But we also had these big established powers that pushed back. And the U.S. was in a weird in-between position where it wasn't yet one of the super interventionist great powers, but was clearly at the top of its game. It was a huge huge percentage of the world's economy and industrial output, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, Hitler himself said, you know, I, I model like my views based off of what the U.S. did to the Native Americans and, and what, you know, Britain did to India. Like, this is what I want to do to the Slavic world. And, and so I would say it's, it's a, we basically fought to prevent having to have the Cold War be between us and Germany and Japan, who are much more uh, maritime inclined nations who are closer to our interests than the Soviet Union was. And it was all a battle of position and who is the distant and versus more near and therefore more, uh, more dangerous threat. So uh, that would be one response. The other response I would say is that, okay, who's, who's doing that now exactly? Like, you know, we have more assertive rival powers now. Uh, of which China is by far the most capable. I mean, far, far, far more capable than Russia. And, and the question is, 
so you see a lot of U.S. media talk a lot about like the Chinese government, how it operates, what may or may not be happening in Xinjiang. I've seen a lot of information on both sides of that, so I don't really take an official position, but I know why the U.S. media is talking about it a lot. Um, but the thing is, even in the Chinese case, which is the only country that I think legitimately threatens the U.S. position in the world today, uh, I would still say, okay, well, look at China. Um, they're not particularly, I mean, financially, they're expansionist, sure, but they're not particularly like our borders have to expand over here and there. And the Axis powers had the luxury of having like pretty weak states nearby them um, or states that turned out to be unexpectedly weak in the case of France that people thought would hold the line and didn't. Um, this is not the case with China. China is in the most economically dynamic part of the world. It's got a lot of extremely strong sovereign nations immediately around it. They're not just going to get walked over. It's not going to be like, oh, you sold out Czechoslovakia. You know, like Japan isn't going to become Czechoslovakia. Like the, the, that's the third largest economy in the world. Uh, so even if you believe that China is going to go out on a big tear, which I don't see much evidence for, um, they're already kind of like blocked off in their neighborhood. It would be very easy for the US to make defensive alliances with people to stop a huge Chinese expansion if it's so wanted. Um, so if anything, I would kind of turn the argument back on them. I would say if you're so into World War II analogies, then what you're really against is um, a kind of out of control country that <laughs> invades all the countries around it and uh, takes part in weird social engineering projects. Well, um, that sounds kind of like the United States, honestly, in the 21st century. So if, if that's your concern, uh, why, why would you not want to rein in this before it becomes the norm, before people say, well, America is expanding everywhere, so we have to expand to counteract them. And, and that's already we've seen this logic with weapons of mass destruction. The countries that got rid of weapons of mass destruction often got attacked by the United States. The countries that kept their weapons of mass destruction do not get attacked by the United States. Therefore, the Bush doctrine actually facilitated the spread of weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, it doesn't quite fit with World War II, but the thing that does fit honestly kind of looks more like the U.S. as the destabilizing power, um, if you use that analogy. It's interesting since you mentioned uh, this whole burgeoning conflict between the U.S. and China. Uh, one thing that's interested me about the way this is covered in, in media and elsewhere is, um, you know, if, if China responds to the U.S. by saying, you want to talk about human rights abuses, uh, you know, look at your allies like Saudi Arabia, um, yeah. or, or they can say, hey, what about your Black Lives uh matter and, and and what's being done to black Americans. Uh, who are you to talk to us about our problems? And people will say, well, that's whataboutism. They're pulling a whataboutism. And my response to that has always been, well, China can only do that because we gave them the ammunition to do that. Like, it's, it's true. We have a lot of allies that don't really care that much about human rights. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I guess there's that may be unavoidable in some ways geopolitically when it comes to alliances, but it, it seems like there's a lack of, of self-reflection uh, in the U.S. is what I'm getting at. I mean, we should be reflecting on, well, what are we doing right and what are we doing wrong? And it seems like that's become impossible for a lot of our, I would say, power elites. They just seem incapable of that. They have a hard time giving as much agency to foreign actors as we give to our own um, domestic actors. And 
It's really interesting because the, the Chinese never, this was never part of Chinese diplomatic language until they got used to the US always using it. And they said, well, <laughs> two can play in that game. That's very easy to do. And it is. I mean, you, it's, the US is a very easy country to criticize on human rights grounds if you want to. Um, I would even argue that the, the, the number one thing we like to deploy against our foes is, is very true in our case, which is having an extremely compliant and, um, and um, useless as opposition uh, mainstream media. Um, I, I think that there, you, you can definitely make the case. It's just very easy to, to do this. It's a very uh, uh, throwing stones in the, from the glass house thing, which is why I view so much human uh, rights rhetoric as cheap, uh, disposable, and largely in support of an ideology rather than like a concrete policy that makes much sense. Because, you know, and I'm saying this as someone who, who did, uh, for a year, I did human rights work uh, uh, for the US government. And I'm not saying that like, I'm really bitter and disaffected. And, and, like, no, I actually had a great time. Like, <laughs> I, I had really cool coworkers. I had a great time. Um, but I saw its limits. I also saw that the only reason I could do anything constructive was because I was focused on the region the US did not care about intervening in. <laughs> so it, it, it was like how it should be. And in my opinion, that's how all uh, of the regional um, offices for the human rights section of the State Department, they should be like that. They, they shouldn't view themselves as we're going to just discredit every government around the world, which as we increasingly see as, as um, the US is no longer calling all the shots, this no longer really produces any benefit for the US to do this anyway. It's just a, like virtue signaling by politics. Uh, but like if you take a more detached view and if you say like, oh, we're human rights people and uh, we're going to study the human rights situation in the countries of the world so that we can better predict what might happen in those countries, period, end of story. How stable is the government? How likely is the government to survive or fall when something happens? Like, I think that's valuable work. I, I think that's extremely valuable work. And, you know, maybe every once in a while you get to throw some money and uh, uh, to like building something that is useful to an impoverished community or something, fine. But being used in this overtly imperial way as it is in most regions of the world, because most regions of the world are, are viewed and in some cases incorrectly as vital to US security interests, um, it just becomes a method of delegitimizing foreign governments. And then of course, once you're no longer the position you were in 1999, 2000, um, then countries are gonna be like, well, why can't I just do that to you? Like no one believes you anymore anyway. Half of what you said was a lie and you know, whatever. And so they're gonna do that. China does it very intelligently. China's very good at trolling the, the kind of rhetoric that the Beltway class uses um, and, and just turning it back on them. And, and I, I kind of, I can't blame them, obviously. <laughs> I, I was gonna to say too, it's, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned we underestimate uh, the agency of foreign governments. And I, I've been telling people recently, I think both, American exceptionalists and certain people that I think don't realize they're almost inverted American exceptionalists both hold that. And what I mean by inverted American exceptionalists, I'm sorry, but I don't believe everything that happens in other countries is always a Keller revolution. You know, yes. I, I think we're in the grip of a really bad form of American exceptionalism that even permeates people that claim they're critical of it. 
Yes. Oh, I, I completely agree. That was actually implicitly what I meant when I said that it has a left, right and center form, uh, American exceptionalism. Um, I think that um, it, once you become a critique, like I started out, you know, I, I became an adult in the Bush administration uh, after 9-11, uh, right when Iraq was really collapsing. And I feel that that's kind of colored like my interests and, 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 and the position I come from. But it didn't so I've really studied like the neoconservative movement and a lot of things that are kind of affiliated to it because, you know, you want to understand your foes and not just, you know, be opposed to them. And be, and I've kind of felt that in the past decade and maybe in the past few years in particular, we've definitely seen the rise of the opposite, but very similar reaction to that, which is the the the, the America is a uniquely evil country. <laughs> Take, um, which I mean, in some parts of the world, that's true. Like, if I was Syrian, I would be like, America is a uniquely evil country. You know, I, I, it, it is situational, but um, it, it, there is a, there is a, I would say, left wing and anti-establishment, and even like on some elements of the far right, there is this kind of uh, American exceptionalism because America is so evil. It, it is, you know, everything it does is bad, and and I would, I would say that well. The thing you have to keep in mind is that the United States is still, who knows for how much longer, but it's still the predominant power. And if you just got rid of it, it would create this massive power vacuum that all the other big powers were fight over. It would be incredibly destabilizing to the world. Uh, so you'd be much better changing its behavior and getting it to scale itself back than like just absolving it. But also, I would say that this guilt complex, if you will, or whatever it is, it continues to fuel the idea that all of foreign policy and geopolitics is this morality play of which Americans are the central characters. <laughs> and it's either their redemption arc or it's their resignation arc or whatever you want to call it. A very kind of um, protagonist syndrome view of history. But other countries, they, they do really, really bad shit too. Uh, and uh, that's just, they also do cool stuff too. Sometimes America does cool stuff too, much more in the past than now. Whether or not they do bad or, or good, I'm, like my issue is like, you know, the idea that uh, any country outside of the US has no agency on its own to do anything, to me, that's ridiculous. And it's, uh, you know, I, I think there's elements of the left, the right and the center that do that, that act as if these countries have no control over anything within their own sphere. Yeah. And then you you sometimes see the version of it. So the, like the belief in like that there's this, um, you know, resistance axis, so to speak, right? That there are these countries that have all banded together in like solidarity against the United States. Now, right. I Iran, Syria, and I think Hezbollah are usually called that. Well, well that's, that's, that's the Shia crescent. Yeah. And then that's sometimes uh, uh, put in with Russia and China, right? It's just like they're in Venezuela because they're all just like hanging together, right? Of course, a lot of these countries aren't hanging together. <laughs> um, they're just, they rhetorically support each other because they, they have common enemies, but they, they, they want different things. Not, not to interrupt you, but it's like Syria. Like, let's say uh, Assad got the Golan Heights back in an agreement with Israel. I'm not sure Syria would uh, necessarily uh, always be in agreement with Iran. I don't, it's not like this idea of an axis of resistance is, uh, it's not like an organization. <laughs> Um, no. it's, it's a configuration and it's, it's pretty loose. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more, I would say it's a bit more rhetorical, um, almost like a counter ideology, than it is a real thing. Uh, you also see like the Syrian government clearly knows that it's increasingly dependent on its allies. So it actually likes to play its allies off of each other. It likes to, to, oh, if Iran's got too much influence, it's trying to tilt towards Russia. If Russia has too much influence, it's time to tilt back towards Iran. Um, 
so, you know, these politics never stops. There's just this narcissistic attempt by many people in the United States to say that we're always the central actor. Of course, I would say this is kind of the problem behind a lot of American interventions, like even leaving aside the question of to intervene or not to intervene, I would say, even if you come down on the side of, okay, let's intervene, a reason the US often screws it up is because the US does not tend to cultivate a class of people who actually take parts of the world on their own terms and tend to be more like, okay, how do I Americanize this part of the world? So, so it, it, it's not like, most of these conflicts are, are local conflicts. They start with a local thing, they have local causes, and the most important actors are going to be local. And the US having, having so much of the governing and ideological classes have merged the concept of the universal American empire with everything that happens in the world. And it just doesn't work that way. There's, it, there's just so many differences. And you even see this in people opposed to these interventions who I oftentimes agree with on many things. And they'll say, well, that's because the US is the protagonist of all of this. It's just the bad guy. It's not the good guy. I'm like, okay, fine. Well, but you know, not, not really. I, I, I think it's just too complicated for that. Uh, the, there's lots of everyone's the protagonist of their own story and everyone's someone else's antagonist. And I mean, this is why I think the concept of sovereignty is so important because it, the even if it's fictional and we always know powerful countries will have more influence than smaller countries, the idea that we get together under a legal fiction to hash things out based off of like, let's combine our interests, let's meet, meet a compromise. I think that is the core of diplomacy, but it's really, really hard to have that when people view the world as their moral playground. And it, no matter what persuasion they come from, and, and I actually have, I mean, not to signal boost too much as I don't know when it's coming out, but um, in the near future, probably within the next month, I'm gonna have a big research project of mine come out that kind of tacks with a very similar thing to this, which is that the US is so used to using moralistic justifications to rally up interventionism. And I'm gonna be trying to predict what the next phase of that will be. And I mean, the title, the working title so far gives that away because the title of the project is called The Woke Imperium. Um, but <laughs> but that and I'm, in that project, I'm going to talk much more about how I think social justice causes are the future of getting millennials and Zoomers on board with what is effectively a regurgitated um, a neoliberal, neoconservative uh, geopolitical project. I actually wanted to touch on that briefly here at the end, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I wouldn't say I'm opposed to social justice causes, and I have, I have some issues with this. I mean, I just don't like the culture war in general. I, I find it like uh, to be very distracting and not getting at a lot of the issues. I mean, it, it seems like we've been in the same culture war for, I would say, 40 years now. You know, back, back in yeah. the 90s, we called it political correctness. Those, the, the political correctness wars. Now it's the woke wars, but it's really yeah. just the, the same thing. But I do worry that, well, I, I'll put it this way. Uh, there was an article in Bloomberg. I don't know if you saw this uh, from September 19th, 2021 by uh, Tyler Cohen, of all people. Um, mm -hmm. And it was, you know, he, he describes himself as decidedly unwoke, but he wrote a piece called Why Wokeism Will Rule the World. And he says, the woke movement could be the next great U.S. cultural export, and it is going to do many other countries some real good. And what he argues is that uh, ultimately we, we could see uh, wokeism, which I, I think it's interesting he uses that term because it's a very, I think that term is very vague at this point. And very yeah. removed from how it was used initially on things like Black Agreed. Twitter, 
And yeah. it, it's funny because it's almost like a placeholder term now. And he's sort of saying, well, we could use this to reintroduce a form of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. Well, th this is something I've actually seen coming for a long time, even before I was aware of the word woke. I mean, that's just the most common word you see now. So that's why I'm tentatively titling my project that. Uh, but I actually saw this shift in 2012 when the Coney 2012 thing happened. Uh, that was kind of my wake up call because it was obvious that Christian nationalism and, and flag waving, you know, trucker nutsism, whatever you want to call it, of the Bush era, which was the dominant culture war back then. I mean, I, I don't want to be one of these people that says the, the culture war has always been an obnoxious left-wing project because, I mean, I grew up specifically when it was an obnoxious right-wing project. And I have not forgotten that. I don't trust those people at all, and I don't think they've gone away. I'm, I'm kind of waiting for, for the theocrats to come back and, and with great fear and trepidation. Um, but I think that it's kind of part of America's puritanical heritage that um, left, right, and center eventually when they run out of solid ideas or when they don't want to talk about, you know, like the actual economics of politics, um, kind of go in this direction. They go in this uh, moral majoritarian direction. And uh, that was, for, for decades, that was the religious right. But I think in, in, the, in the last decade, since 2012 would be the, the, the first awakening of this, that's when I got, I saw, oh yeah, like the, the Petraeus types, they're not interested in in the, you know, we're, we're fighting for the flag of Jesus anymore. They see that the, the future is like, we're gonna protect innocent women and children from, you know, bad, scary uh, guys who, who whatever. Um, and, and the popularity of that, but also its dismal failure uh, shows, I don't think in the, the general public will be super won over by this, but I do think it's, it's a way of, um, of kind of circling the wagons for the professional managerial class. It, it, much in the sense that the, the British empire, when it, it ceased to be economically beneficial to expand, uh, they, they then had all these middle-class people who were kind of benefiting from it, but not as much as other people. And those were the people that came up with the whole, like, well, we're spreading civilization, you know, Paris soap will wipe, wipe away the barbaricness and, and you know, people will, we're making the whole world England so that the whole world can become good Englishmen. And, and I think that this is a missionary ideology. And I think that this missionary ideology now has a both, I would say, a center and a left wing form because the left has captured the center on social issues in many ways. And um, uh, it's a way for the professional managerial class to, to rally around the flag, if you will. Now, how popular it will be, I don't think it will be that popular, but you will see it reflected in the legacy media. You will see it reflected in, in a kind of, in, to use your uh, Weimar analogy, it will be like, why do you hate the Afghan women and girls? You know, uh, why do you hate uh, gay people in Iran? Like, it, it's going to be this kind of thing, right? And, and it's, if you don't intervene, then you hate those people. It's interesting because I was going to mention in that regard, uh, you know, the, the British philosopher and, uh, you know, I would say king of the pessimists at this point, John Gray, um, recently wrote a piece where, and I'm I, a I huge just, fan of his, by the way. I, no, I, I like Gray a lot, even though, you know, my politics are probably a lot different. Um, same, same. But, <laughs> but it, it's funny because um, he wrote recently, and I think this may be an oversimplification, or like I said, I, I get annoyed by the way the word woke is used. I don't think it really has it's very removed from its initial meaning. Uh, but he said that wokery is the successor ideology of neoconservatism, a singularly American worldview. And I think um, I think he has a weird point because what you were saying earlier, 
you know, there's this sort of missionary ideology at work, especially with uh, how, how we do imperialism. I mean, it, it, the, the way it's being argued now, this sort of cosmopolitan crusader ideology, I mean, it has a lot of overlap with neoconservatism. I think there's, oh, yeah. people will get mad at me for saying this, but I think there's subtle differences between, say, uh, a Samantha Power or a Madeleine Albright and neoconservatives, but there is oh, a yes. great deal of overlap. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think studying the legacy of people like Power, um, and also, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about because the other big humanitarian interventionist is Anne Marie Slaughter, so you have Slaughter and Power. Um, <laughs> but uh, these there's this group of people that are, they're worth studying because I think they're the bridge. They're the bridge from the kind of post 9-11 pure rage chauvinism, right-wing interventionism uh, to what we now have, which is increasingly kind of uh, center-left, uh, very, very Democratic Party-aligned interventionism. And I think that bridge is the is the acolytes of Samantha Power. It is the cosmopolitan crusaders. But what we're going to see, I think, in the future is something that's still different from them in turn. Like, this is an ever-evolving thing. So the future of Samantha Power is going to be like, some some you know someone from like uh who went to a small uh uh kind of a liberal arts <laughs> uh rustic university somewhere uh, and got like a maybe like a journalism or or, uh, or english degree and then leverage their connections to work in dc and is really you know into like fad dieting and uh like being allergic to glutens and like eating lots of kale and uh this person is going to be like really into um, you know, intersectional rhetoric. And that intersectional rhetoric is going to be deployed by the establishment, uh, both knowingly and, and in kind of a, a pure faith way, um, as the kind of, well, America is a uniquely guilty nation. You know, America is responsible for Native American genocide and slavery. Uh, and, and has done things like Vietnam. They'll always say things that are safely in the past and not things that are currently present, of course. Um, and, and they will say, this, but we reckon with this. Look how we reckon with this. We reckon with our past. We 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 will suitably self-flagellate in public. Um, we'll we'll make reading Robin D'Angelo mandatory in, in the in professional sphere, or whatever. And this will prove that we are, in fact, the most enlightened people on the world. Because look at these other countries that don't do that. Look at look at these cultures who you can't trust because they've never had a reckoning with these things that have happened in their past. Of course, in many cases, these people will not know enough about those countries to even say if that's true, <laughs> because some countries have had, had honest reckonings with their past. But you're, you're going to see this kind of rhetoric deployed. And it's going to be like, well, you have to sanction this country to oblivion, because just think, it, uh, literally, it, the one thing that never changes is the quote that the Simpsons popularized, think of the children. It's always going to come down to some version of think of the children. And that's going to be used to manipulate people to support certain policies they might not otherwise do. And the scariest part of that to me is that, I mean, you mentioned real reckonings, which presupposes there's fake reckonings. And I think we're just going to keep going with the sort of watered down fake reckonings rather than doing the real thing. Oh, I agree. I mean, like the thing is, I am like, I'm, I'm a realist on foreign policy, which puts me in like in the paleocon camp, but like uh, in terms of, I guess, like uh, professionally speaking, but my domestic views are actually very left of liberal uh, for the most part. <laughs> and um, I, I, 
I one like there's many of these causes I agree with. You know, like I, I was huge in the gay rights movement under Bush because we were reacting to a, a real thing. Like this is not something I'm not saying I have this chip on my shoulder. I really want to stick it to these like these SJWs. Like ideologically speaking, I often agree with them, even though there increasingly are times where I don't. But my point is that this is like everything else, whether it's centrist liberalism for humanitarian intervention or it's neoconservatism getting the ex-Trotskyites to become Republicans or whatever it is, these things serve a purpose to carry out a certain pol political agenda. And once they get adopted by the Beltway class, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, et cetera, you're just going to see the really bad side of it. And, and, and it's not to take a specific position on issue X, Y, and Z to notice that this is just a process. This is a process of like imperial capture that is going to be deployed uh, it, it already is being deployed, I would say, on activist circles, just like it was deployed in other circles in past decades. I was going to say, too, I, I could see why you would say uh, you would compare realism and, and paleoconservatism. But I, I will say this, that we do have our realists that I, I would say don't fit as neatly into that. People like um, I, I would say Stephen Walt is, is you know, oh, yeah. kind of a, he's a liberal. Yeah. But I, I think it's important just to close here on the subject of, of realism, because I was talking to Shireen Hunter recently, who she would call herself a realist, although her focus is on Iran, because that, that's her background. And she, she believes that Iran has to adopt a more realist perspective on a lot of things as much as America does. And we were talking about how realism really gets a very bad rap. A lot of people, when you say realism, they will say, oh, that, that's the Henry Kissinger. And I, I'm not sure that I would say Kissinger is like the only exemplar of um, realism, nor, I mean, I think there's argument too about how much he really fits into that school. So maybe if you could, in closing, what do we sort of mean when we talk about realism? Right. Well, realism, I would say, uh, the, the kind of dictionary definition is understanding of international politics, which is based off of the facts on the ground rather than where you want them to be, more where they are, and an understanding Realizing that, that we um, live in a sort of anarchic world system where nation states yeah, well, are fighting the, the for The concept resources. of anarchy to a realist, yeah, it, it doesn't mean like a, a, a vegan commune. It means, <laughs> it means that the UN isn't strong enough to to enforce laws over states if the states are suitably powerful. So the states are the most powerful form of politics in the world. And therefore that state to state relations are the dominant thing. And of course, state to state relations, if they recognize each other as states, which they should for the sake of stability, is always gonna come down to a quid pro quo bargaining. It isn't gonna be about like grand views of like human progress or whatever. Um, and um, in this way, I very much am a realist, uh, but I also think that realism itself is a philosophical approach to international politics, which is um, does not fit on a left-right spectrum. In the United States, which is why I had that caveat, in the United States, you're assumed to be kind of a paleocon adjacent if, if, if you're a realist um, or, or maybe a libertarian. Um, like I said, I myself consider myself on most issues left of liberal, um, but I still consider myself a realist anyway. I, I think the paleocons happen to be right about a lot of the foreign policy stuff <laughs> and also very wrong about a lot of domestic stuff, but, <laughs> but um, it's really just an approach. Like when I was a, a student in the UK, uh, most re realism is even less popular in the UK than in the US because they, they get to live 
live off of American defense largesse. So they, I think they live in a bit of denial as, as to where this world order, quote unquote, comes from. But um, constructivists and postmodernists are much, much more common there. And uh, but most realists in the UK were were left wingers. So so it really does depend on your situation. Like there are a lot of Marxist realists in the UK who are like hybrid between those two. Um, in, in the US, it's more just viewed as right wing. So you have multiple kinds of realism, but they're more strategic uh, differences over how to handle policy than they are grand worldview differences. So like an offensive realist says the only way a country can be can um, maximize its security is by always increasing its influence over other countries whenever possible. Not to cut in, but I was curious, what do you think of uh, John Nersheimer, who's sort of one of the very important figures when it comes to realism? Mearsheimer is, is kind of the original like uh, uh, quantifier of so many of the contemporary terms we we use. Uh, Mearsheimer is an offensive realist, but but it, it, not all the way, but like mostly. And it's interesting because most realists, Mearsheimer being the most prominent among them, opposed the Iraq War back when that was popular, and, and even the general public and, and everyone in policy they wanted it. Um, the realists almost all came out against the Iraq War, including Mearsheimer, who was an offensive realist because he said you can't. The risks don't justify the potential dangers. It's just not worth doing, uh, even though he has a generally more hawkish view. And then there's like Walt is a bit more in the center of that. And then you have like defensive realists who, who tend to be more um, neoclassical inclined. So they, they actually tend to believe that um, maximizing power isn't the most important thing, but regime survival and prestige is. This is actually the camp I consider myself to be in the most, um, where the government is legitimizing itself more than it is just going for absolute gains um and and it is very much more defensive you see this also because a lot of countries they won't always do a balance of power thing they won't always uh be against the country <clears throat> that is more stronger than another country but the one that threatens them the most so you know countries will sign into alliances with stronger powers that might dominate their uh, thing just to keep a country they're more afraid of their designs at bay, which explains a lot of, you know, countries in Eastern Europe. It explains a lot of things that have happened in various conflict zones. So like I myself, I'm quite defensive. I think the U.S. has the best geopolitical position in the entire world. It doesn't use it very intelligently, mind you. <laughs> in fact, it squanders most of those advantages. But I think being the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere and having like coast to coast resources and a big Navy, that gets you the best you could ever want to get. Unless, of course, your objective is world hegemony, in which case you actually undermine your security by increasing conflict zones, refugee flows, whatever. But I would say, you know, I would, there's no country I'd rather have, you know, from a defensive standpoint. So there's no need to do all these interventions. We're perfectly secure. Well, we have lots of trade. We have lots of relations with people. Um, we'd probably have more better relations if we were a bit less militaristic about it. Um, but, you know, that's a realist view. But it's also a realist view to say, like, no, we 100% need to do Cold War with China. Uh, so it's it's not really a cohesive. It's more just like a, a matter of strategy and tactics, right? Like, how how much do you want to emphasize your civilizational mission or your your kind of raison d'etre, like Samantha Power would, or how little you think that plays into it? I mean, I can point at so many different regime types that are realists, and I would even make the case that uh, you can find examples of realism in every literate culture going back to pre-modern times, which makes it the truly non-Western and ironically universal uh, political theory, whereas opposed to the supposedly super multicultural things like constructivism and postmodernism are purely Euro-American affairs and who largely 
basically just arose in the concept of the North Atlantic uh, and, and only really exists with certain super educated elites uh, abroad, but otherwise don't. Whereas, you know, there's like Katilia in classical age India, there's the legalist school, an entire school of realism in, in Chinese history called legalism that, that's thousands of years old. Um, these things have existed all around the world because I think there's just always people that look at the world and they say, okay, regardless of what you think about it, how do you want to handle the day-to-day -day basis of quid pro quo cost benefit calculation? And, and all those people have differences too, but they have that common similarity, the, the anarchic world, the need for there to be some kind of order, but the order shouldn't be too ideological. It should be like practically focused. And that's probably how I sum it up, I guess. And I, I think it's important um, to, and this will be the last thing I say about it because we've gone really long. I apologize for that, but no problem. I, I was always impressed when I first read uh, John Mearsheimer as a teenager. One thing that people miss at the beginning of that book is uh, the, the book, The Great Tragedy of, of Power Politics, is that he says like right out in the open in the introduction, you know, I'm dealing with the system as it currently is, this sort of anarchic world system. That's not to say that we won't have a different system at, at mm -hmm. some point, um, although the burden for proof that that could come into existence is on the people uh, that argue for it. But, you know, he he's not saying we can't have a different way of doing things decades or centuries into the future, but he's dealing with things as they are now. And I think yeah. that's the value of the realist perspective. Yeah, I I, I agree, and I, I think it gets it, um, it. It's important to know your limits, and um, but that, that doesn't mean that you don't think. Okay, well, if I had the opportunity to do X and Y, that might change things. You wouldn't rule that out either, as long as it was you know grounded in like this could actually work. It wouldn't be a complete shot in the dark. Uh, I, the way I like to compare it as someone who is both in the realist camp professionally, but also grew up with Star Trek, <laughs> is that the United Federation of Planets would be great and I'd love to live in it. But uh, even in Star Trek, uh, <laughs> in the official lore, stuff had to get really bad and people had to reinvent how their societies work before that happened. It didn't just happen because a bunch of, you know, like liberal Kantians sat in a room and had a discussion. Like that, that, there, there were things that happened, there were crises that no one asked for, and then they happened. And even then I would say, well, my favorite Star Trek is still Deep Space Nine, which arguably is the most realist one. So. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again, Christopher Mott, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? I think this was uh, one of the most fascinating conversations I've had lately. So Oh, thank you. It was my pleasure to come on. Um, well, I, I publish on the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy website, which is my employer. Uh, I do a lot of work with jointly with other people and solo there. And I have a uh, personal website called GeoTrickster, like G-E-O, like geopolitics, GeoTrickster, one word, uh, which is a WordPress site where I basically put everything I don't officially publish. And I also contain links to all the various places I publish separately. Uh, throughout that. Uh, that's much more informal, much more goofy. And since my job currently has me writing on geopolitics a lot these days, it's a bit less geopolitical and more about um, other other things. But um, yeah, I, I kind of keep everything uh, collated there. Uh, so, you know, those would be my things um, and uh, my primary things. And um, I'm always looking for new and interesting ideas that go with uh, materialist philosophies of various sorts. So uh, yeah, uh, check it out if you feel so inclined. Thank you again, Christopher Mott. Thank you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Christopher Mott of the Institute for Peace and Diplomacy. 
As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Should be getting some new content up on the Patreon for $5 tier and above supporters very, very soon here, definitely before the end of the month. I have a few things I'm cooking up there. And, of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to... Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners and supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.